Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with the somewhat horse Akil Amar this morning. Good morning, Akil. Good morning, and we have a very special guest who is more stallion than horse, <laughs> Thur- who's a thoroughbred. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm very, very pleased to welcome this morning Professor Jack Balkin. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. I was thinking maybe I have to to whinny or nay or something. <laughs> well, let me tell our audience a little bit about you first. Jack Balkin is the Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at the Yale Law School, and he's uh, the founder and director of Yale's Information Society Project, which is an interdisciplinary center that studies law and new information technologies. And he also directs the Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression and the Knight Law and Media Program at Yale. Now, I know that he that he's up on information technologies because he's the uh, he founded 20 years ago the uh, well-known blog Balkanization. And I know it was 20 years ago because that's when I started following it, was 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, at that time, blogs were something pretty new. And uh, so it's turned into, you know, quite a quite a big deal. And uh, they just actually had a symposium to celebrate the, the 20th anniversary of it. Um, in terms of Professor Balkan's background, he, he uh, attended Harvard University, where he received his bachelor's and JD degrees. And he had a, has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge University in Great Britain. He served as a clerk for Judge Carol King on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And then he had some time in practice, uh, in private practice at Cravath, Swain, and Moore in New York, and then entered the academy. He's been on various law faculties, has visited uh, at various uh, universities, and he's received many honors, including being a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Law Institute. He's also written widely in uh, public, the public press, things like the New York Times, The Atlantic, even the New England Journal of Medicine, something dear to my heart. So welcome, please, Professor Jack Balkan. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Akil, what are we going to talk about today? Um, Andy? Well, we're, we're going to talk about one of Akil's favorite topics, the 14th Amendment, and we're going to talk about one of the public's favorite topics these days, which they actually they probably wish would go away, um, the, uh, the debt ceiling and how these two things are related. But in the tradition of America's Constitution, we're going to take a look at how these two ideas or these two subjects, which themselves seem perhaps somewhat broad, are related to even broader and more interesting topics, because Jack is the expert on all of these things. So first, let's just review what the, what the problem that we're facing here in the United States is right now. So um, America borrows money to pay its bills. Um, in a sort of a modern economy that uh, uses debt financing. And the idea is that they're going to pay it back. And the 14th Amendment, Section 4, weighs in on the notion of the United States paying back its debts. Um, So Congress currently, uh, the House controlled by the Republicans, since the the House appropriates money, um, or bills, or to put it another way, all bills that appropriate money have to begin in the House, um, they still have to be passed by the Senate and signed by the president, or at least presented to the president. Um, um, you know, the, the House, being in Republican hands, is now threatening to not raise the debt ceiling, which is a statutory limit 
on how much money uh, or how many uh, on bonds that the that the Treasury can issue, and so that poses various problems because we're about to you know go up against that where the normal payment of bills will result in the need for more money. Um, so, what sort of constitutional issues does that raise? Jack, and why do we talk about the 14th Amendment in this context? What's going on, uh, Andy, uh, to, to restate what you're saying, is Republican Party, uh, Republican congressmen, um, actually for a long time now, um, for at least a decade, have been thinking that they could use the um, uh, routine increase in the debt ceiling statute as leverage to extract concessions on spending and entitlement reform. Uh, back in 2011, there was a debt ceiling crisis. Everything almost, uh, the economy almost blew up. Uh, in all, and then finally, uh, in the summer, it was resolved with a, an agreement between President Obama um, and the congressional Republicans. Uh, the, uh, it was, uh, there was a Budget Control Act, and, uh, and uh, there were a whole bunch of decisions that were made. Uh, after that um, whole crisis left the uh, sense um, by Obama and his vice president, Joe Biden, they're never going to negotiate over it again because essentially it was a situation in which everybody knew that it would have been a disaster not to raise a debt ceiling. So the Republicans were essentially holding a loaded gun against their own heads. Uh, and that just didn't seem like a very good situation for negotiation. Uh uh, so uh, that's what's been going on for the last decade, and now here we are again. When when Republican President Donald Trump was in office, Republicans just routinely raised the debt ceiling or suspended it uh, because there was no concessions to be made. But now that there's a Democrat in the White House, they're back at their old tricks, and that's what's leading to the current uh, showdown. Uh, it's not clear what the Republican Congress wants in return for raising the debt ceiling. It's it's sort of like load, putting a loaded gun against your head and saying, if you don't give me what you want, I'll shoot myself. And then you say, well, what do you want? And he says, well, I'm not quite sure, uh, but it's something. you got to give me something or else I'll shoot myself in the head and you too. Uh, so that's the situation. So this is rather insane. And it's... Um, and therefore, the position that the Biden administration has taken is we're not going to negotiate over it. We want a clean debt ceiling. Now, there'll probably be some uh, agreement, uh, a side agreement that gets reached eventually. But that's what's going on. So the constitutional question is, well, what if there's nothing that you can offer the uh, Republicans in the House uh, to raise the debt ceiling? Right? They hold the loaded gun to their head and say, I'll shoot myself. And you keep offering them and saying, no, no, nope, no. Nope. Uh, what can you do? Well, at that point, we have a problem. And the problem is that the United States has debts, some of which are in bonds and some other uh, kinds of obligations. And the, the 14th Amendment, Section 4, says that the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Mm. So now the question is, how does that passage in the 14th Amendment apply? Does it mean that the debt ceiling itself is unconstitutional? Well, some people say that, and the answer is no, it's not unconstitutional. Um, then uh, I should just say that the debt ceiling itself was actually designed around World War I as a means of making it easier for the Treasury to borrow money. Uh, before World War I, uh, Congress was very much hands-on in each issuance of bonds, and there were laws passed, and, it was, and as the United States becomes a modern economy, it becomes 
you know, not a plausible way to work. So instead, they passed a, a general law that said you can borrow money up to this amount. That's the debt ceiling. That's the, so it's a product of World War One. In fact, it really isn't even necessary. Most Western democracies don't have a debt ceiling or else they peg the debt ceiling to some percentage of GDP. So it automatically rises. So it really isn't necessary to have one. But we had one and and it's been raised over the years. Sometimes it's been suspended as opposed to being raised. Um, and there are differences there, but I don't want to get into them right now. Uh, but basically, it's just ordinary bookkeeping. You just do it so that the Treasury can uh, can borrow um, uh, can borrow by selling U.S. bonds. Okay, so before we before we leave that, you, you know, because there's a million questions that that are raised along the way, um, you say the debt ceiling is not unconstitutional. No, um, not at in, all. In, in and and any more itself. any more than than any statute by Congress authorizing the Treasury. Uh, to uh, uh, to issue bonds, generally not unconstitutional. But are there situations where it can it can create um, uh, a circumstance under which the president is obligated to act, but only has a choice of un- unconstitutional actions? Well, the question you're asking is whether or not, as applied to a particular financial situation, the uh, ban on uh, selling more bonds on floating more bonds would put the president in an unconstitutional situation. Yes. The answer is yes. There are situations in which if you tell the president uh, you have to pay your bills, the president has to do that, uh, but I won't let you raise any more money by floating bonds and I won't let you print any more money, then uh, you're, you're basically in a position where the president has to say to the holders of debt, sorry, you don't get paid. And that would be might be understood as questioning the validity of the debt of the United States. Uh, there's an interesting question as to whether or not uh, simply saying I don't have the money, I can't pay you now is the same thing as questioning the validity of the debt. Uh, I want to get to that in a second. We talk about the historical mm-hmm. basis of Section Four, but I just want to say, in, in, my conclusion is, is that if you engage in kind of a hostage-taking measure, saying that I will basically default on the debt unless you give me what I want, then what you're doing is you're questioning the validity of the debt of the United States because you're using it as a bargaining chip uh, for uh, a, a political goal, and in fact, that is exactly what uh, the debate over Section Four was about. So there, you could imagine a scenario in which. Uh, the congressional Republicans stick to their guns and they absolutely refuse to raise the debt ceiling. And eventually it looks like we're going to have to default on our obligations. Well, that would create a violation of the Constitution, but not the debt ceiling statute itself. It's the actions of politicians, which would be in violation of the Constitution. So, Jack, a couple of things there. One, you introduced another wrinkle when you said printing money. So we want to hear a little bit about printing money and what the money could look like. And I've heard talk about this thing called a trillion dollar coin, and and you're connected to that story. So let's talk about that. And second, and related, lots of the things that the government has to spend on aren't really debts for, you know, uh, let's say past loans, not really repayments of past loans. For example, the National Park Service is going to be presumably open tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, we're going to have to pay them once the park rangers show up. But I've heard a lot of talk and I want you to to weigh in on the idea that a a president in order, because of Section 4, would have to prioritize the debt 
for past loans, pay the T-bills off first. And in effect, then you need to tell the park rangers, don't show up tomorrow um, or next week, because if you do, I can't pay you. And I don't I don't want to incur a, a new debt, a wage debt. So um, I've heard a bunch of folks say, in effect, this is the debt ceiling debate is really akin to kind of a government shutdown of a certain sort until we get much, much deeper into a crisis. There's still enough money coming in every day from taxes and, and other things that the government does that generate revenue. There's still enough money coming in every day, at least to pay the T-bills. And the thought is a president constitutionally would need to pay the T-bills first, but doesn't want to admit all of that now because that reduces his leverage when he says, I'm not going to negotiate with terrorists. Yeah. Discuss. Uh, so let's, <laughs> let's first talk about uh, the idea of partial uh, shutdown. And then I want to move back to the question of currency and bonds. So and trillion I, dollar coins. Yeah. Yes, That's yes. very exciting to me. And, 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 I, sure and, and, and I know, and I know people have asked you whose picture uh, will be, whose portrait yeah. will, be, will be on them. But anyway, so, um, so one possibility is that uh, the Treasury keeps, keeps has have to paying it. Uh, so uh, it, uh, obligations arise, the, pres- uh, the Treasury just pays them out. There are computer programs for that. One model would be to uh, lower the amount of money the Treasury has to pay out every day. You just shut down various government functions. There's an interesting question, constitutional question, never been resolved. Are entitlements obligations or debts? Right. Social um, Security, Medicare, right. Medicaid. So it's, there are lots of obligations the government has. It's promised people it would pay them Social Security and, and Medicare reimbursements. And are those debts or are those merely obligations? And at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, uh, the government didn't do as much. There were pensions. Uh, pensions are specifically mentioned in the debates. But what you don't have is you have, don't have the modern state that we have with all, all these various things the government spends money on. So they're not thinking very strongly about a, a clear distinction between debt and obligation. And, and Jack, just you, on that, hang, hang on, because yeah. I want to bring France into the equation just, just for fun. So a lot of people think I paid into Social Security, you know, and so I get my money back with interest or something that is like an IRA, you know, or 401k or something. Now, in fact, it's not quite like that. There really isn't an account, truthfully, with Akil Amar's name on it that's like a bank account. It, it's oh, more I've, like, no, I've seen yours, Akil. I've seen it. You it's, know, it, 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 it's, it's more like... You know, that's where the trillion-dollar coin is coming from. <laughs> I hope so. I want it in my account. So people th- might think it's like a pension that's vested and individualistic, but it isn't quite... I think, you know, I would say, unless you're going to correct me, and the reason it's not quite like that, we know already is... Government does tweak the Social Security rules. That's, in fact, some of what the Republicans want to do, but don't want to say it. They want to yeah. cut back on Medicare, Medicaid, well, yeah, Social Security. Just, way of making the point on- just on the French, yeah. this is what's generating, you know, blood in the streets in France right now. You know, they're en grève. They're, they're striking because, God forbid, that, that, that the retirement age be bumped up from 62 to 64 or something like that um, for fiscal reasons. So yeah. anyway, that, that I wanted you to just talk a little bit about the, the difference between, say, Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid on the one hand yeah. and a, a, a T-bill on the other. All right. So th- those um, these programs are permanently funded. That is, 
They're automatically funded every year. You don't have to have a new appropriations for them. They they generate costs. The government pays them out. The only question is constitutionally whether we would call them debt or or whether we call them something else called obligation. And the only point I was making is that the people who adopt the 14th Amendment aren't thinking on these terms right. because they don't have a state that does these things. They have pensions, but pensions are vested, as you said, Akil. So they, they just aren't imagining this world. So you have to think about what it would mean in our world. Right. So one view would be that the only thing that's truly debt under the meaning of the 14th Amendment is vested obligations, including bonds and interest on bonds. And everything else And yeah. everything else is everything else is just an obligation. And it's... Um, and you'll just, uh, you know, the government will be like George Santos, I guess, and say, well, you know, I just don't have the money. I'm not going to pay you. Uh, or Donald Trump, I guess. So uh, uh, <laughs> he says, so, I did pay you. <laughs> yeah, right. There you are. So um, it's possible. And certainly um, in, in 2011, when I was looking over this stuff, I said, yeah, that's one possible way you could do it. You could have a partial um, shutdown. And then the partial shutdown would cause such enormous annoyance and anger on the part of the public that they would demand that Congress do something, right? And then it would get solved. The other possibility is as soon as you had anything like a partial shutdown, it would signal to markets around the world that there was some doubt as to whether the United States would eventually default, even on its bonds, and that would cause the markets to crash. And then that would be an instructive lesson for folks in Congress uh, something no, like no, uh, Jack, wasn't there a partial shutdown um, with between Gingrich and, and Clinton way back when? Well, there was a government there was a government shutdown. A government shutdown. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there have been several government shutdowns. There was most recently a government shutdown uh, during the Trump administration. You may remember, I think it was the winter of 2018 um, in uh, late 2017, early 2018, in, uh, <laughs> in which for some strange reason, Republicans couldn't get their act together and the government shut down for a while and then until finally Trump relented. So we've had shutdowns before, but, um, yeah, but the question uh, is, it would, would there be a shutdown because of the debt, debt ceiling? That's different from just a shutdown because they haven't passed a budget or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. And, and the Clinton Gingrich one, there was a, a debt ceiling issue, but that got resolved. And so the actual shutdown in the, in, in the Clinton years was not, didn't raise the question of, of defaulting on the debt. The, um, uh, the point I want to make is what would be different this case is that it would not only be all the anger that comes with a shutdown, but also markets would around the world would start saying, we think the Americans don't know what they're doing. We think they're going to default on their debt, even though they haven't done it yet. And that would put enormous pressure on Congress to act. So this would be different than an ordinary shutdown. This would be, uh, this would be you know, a, a, a catastrophe, an economic catastrophe. And if you think that 2008 was bad, um, if you think that the March of, of 2020 was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. This this would be a total and complete disaster. I mean, I and, think that the likelihood that that the markets would react so, uh, you know, so boldly to, to something like that would be kind of a function of the degree to which they b- believe that the Republicans are crazy. So in other words, you know, right. if, if they think that the... Um, you know, the government shutdown is just another step on the way to an, an inevitable raising of the debt ceiling. It's just another, you know, tactic along the way. And they have the, you know, kind of game theoretically planned out. Then I don't think markets would react that strongly to that. But the whole idea well, here I, is so the Republican. I'm going to make a, a slight disagreement with you. I, I like your game theory idea. But one, our, the best analogy is 2008. Mm-hmm. But what happens was uh, Bush, Bush and the Democrats tried to get a deal through 
to deal with the financial crisis, Republicans in Congress objected. Mm-hmm. And the only and what actually did it was that once they saw the Republicans objected, the markets disciplined them by basically taking a nosedive. And that nosedive is what got the Republicans to come back. Enough Republicans. In fact, what happened was very few actually changed their votes, but enough changed their votes to get the, the package through. And so in some sense, if you're the market and you want you know, to tell the, the Republicans behave, um, the, the only way, in fact, what you're going to behave is that if, if you have a precipitous drop in prices. So that's what happened in 2008. Also, remember, some folks in the market, they don't know whether or not mm-hmm. the Republicans are serious or not. So the only way, you know, so they're going to sell. Right. And uh, so in other words, we can't just say everybody in the market is going to be really cool about this and nothing's going to happen. Um, well, we don't know. I mean, in 2011, there was there, there was a bit of a of a rustle, but it wasn't anything like what we expected it would be. Mm-hmm. There was a downgrade of of U.S. debt. Uh, right. right. And that had problems that, that created problems in the long run. But the situation here, if they if they really, really, really said we're not going to raise the debt, we're on an uncharted territory. Right. Well, what, what I'm getting at there is that the and I agree with everything you just said, but I think that there's a dynamic where the Republicans, even in, in terms of negotiating with Biden, are trying to convince him that they're crazy enough to do it. So so they if you don't believe that they are then you behave differently than if you do believe that they are. And that's true of of the president. And it's true of markets. So, um, and and I don't know exactly what that means, you know, in terms of, does that mean they have to act crazier to convince us that they're crazy? Or does it mean that we just don't take it seriously? So, but I think that's a dynamic that needs to be kept in mind. So I'm more Panglossian about all of this. So let me identify uh, several reasons for some optimism, but let me first identify the biggest concern that Jack has teed up. If financial markets around the world come to believe that the United States is a deadbeat nation, then they'll be less inclined to lend money to the United States to buy T-bills, which are kind of the world currency, the the dollar and and U.S. Treasury bills. Yes, people will sell these things, and that means interest rates go up. And that means that America as a debtor nation is going to, going forward, pay a much higher interest rate on all its debt going forward. And that's a big cost that was avoidable because we're going to be paying for that down the road, even after this crisis is resolved. And so that's the big concern because now we're just paying extra money and not getting anything for it. But here are the the reasons that I'm Panglossian. One that Jack identified is there are feedback loop mechanisms in this game of chicken. And if markets start to tumble, if interest rates start to shoot up on on, on T-bills and and, and all the rest, which means the governments have to pay more to to borrow money for all its operations, that's going to be a two by four um, between the eyes of the mule and get its attention. So there's that. And as we get closer to Armageddon, there are feedback loop mechanisms um, with, with market rates. The second reason that I'm Panglossian is... I do believe that 
Obama actually said, oh, I'm not going to necessarily just prioritize the T-bill debt, but that was just negotiating. Well, on, so that, so that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. On, on, on his head, but, but, and, but I think that this administration will and will have to do that, but doesn't want to tell the well, Republicans all, all, all right. of that. And, so and there was a piece the, in just yesterday's newspapers all about Yellen and Biden and the markets believe that the T-bills are going to be paid off first. And, and I'm a Panglossian because now cards on the table, full disclosure. I have T-bills <laughs> and I want them to be paid off. The third reason, then I'm going to let Jack uh, jump in, is even if, God forbid, there were ever a default, I think the federal government in the long run is good for it and they're going to pay me back with you know extra interest or something to compensate for the fact that they they missed their promised uh, payment. All right. Uh, the, 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 the position that the Biden administration and other administrations, by the way, not just the first time, have taken is they've computerized their payment systems um, they would have to reprogram anything. Right. If they oh, God to forbid we'd have to reprogram a computer. Oh, my God. In the 21st century, well, you know, okay, Y2K, so, the, the head explodes. That, that's what said. But I think you haven't anticipated how old the uh, computer systems are that actually handle a great deal of government business. Uh, having recently dealt with a related problem and learned that the government had a computer systems that were decades old and that the software was so old that they, there was nobody left who knew how to program them. Wow. I'm just telling you, it's actually maybe more difficult than you think. I just want to say, when they tell me that it may be very difficult to reprogram, it's possible they're bluffing. And it's also possible that the systems are quite antiquated and they're not, it's not easy to actually do it. So in fact, there might be practical difficulties. Or the answer could be somewhere in between that mm -hmm. they could reprogram some, but not others. And who knows how much, uh, how long they can keep things going. So uh, we don't know the answer to this question. What we do know is it's certainly not in the interest of the Biden administration to say, oh, yeah, we could do partial, uh, partial payments. Sure. No problem. That's not in their interest. That's your point, right. Akil, And I think that's right. right. So let's. And my, my, and my other one is even if, God forbid, they missed a payment. As long as there's enough liquidity generally, I can borrow from someone else, you know, who's yeah, going to give me but, 99 cents on the dollar because they know it, yeah. that in the end, the feds are going to actually pay me back in full, you know, with interest. Yeah, but you're one individual. We're really yeah. talking about a world financial system. Yeah. And in a world financial system, once the United States has demonstrated that it is not reliable, then that has the... The, that has ripple effects. Right. No, that's that, that's the that's the big risk of, of of losing our unique status in the world as um, the, the go to place for both paper money, which you're going to talk about currency and for government debt, T-bills. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of our great strengths. I mean, there are many we have many resources and many things going for us. <laughs> one of the things we have going for us is. Our debt is considered the safest in the world. Correct. And our currency is the reserve currency. Correct. We don't want to lose either of those. Right. right. We saw the value of that in the you know, in when the sanctions against uh, Russia were were applied. Um, the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency doesn't give the Russians anywhere to go. In 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 partially anyway, but I think that this raises an interesting question because one might say, well, if it's not going to be the United States as the reserve currency. You know, what should it be? Well, maybe it should be, you know, uh, a Chinese currency because they are. Because they're so good and stable and well, transparent well, and, hold on. And, and a great bet going forward. Well, but the, no, but <laughs> hold on. But I think this is important. So the argument might be, well, they're more of an authoritarian regime. And if they don't want to get into this situation, they're not going to get into this situation. And democracies are subject to, you know, this kind of 
um, legislative misbehavior um, that that um, and so that democracies are inherently weaker for for this purpose. And isn't that doesn't that go to part of the original idea behind the Fourteenth Amendment? Section four is to prevent this kind of misbehavior. So before Jack jumps in, I just want to just defend because he he knows infinitely more about Section four of the 14th Amendment than I do. My audience knows that I think I know a lot about all sorts of parts of the Constitution. But on this one, Section four, he demand and he's going to talk about that. But before since since you, uh, you know, baited the bear just a little bit. Yeah, democracies are going to get a lot of things wrong. We're going to be totally stupid much of the time. But these autocracies are going to get big, big things wrong. They're going to kill millions of people in a cultural revolution or a great leap forward, you know, massive famines, pogroms. So I think the Chinese actually have really screwed the pooch on um, one child. Okay, and they're going to have a massive gender imbalance. They do between males and females. Their COVID uh, policies were disaster. And that's because they're not transparent and open. They don't want to. Yes, they, they can get do lots of things very cleverly and smart and quickly, but they don't listen to criticism. They shut themselves off. All these people two years ago, three years ago, China, China, China. I think just the, the last year has not been a great year for China, COVID in particular. So I do worry that we lose our unique status in the world as the safest place um, and the most stable place, even for all our craziness. And that's the real concern. I, I, I hear that. But but I do think investors would around the world, myself included, would be unwise to take their money out of the U.S. and, and start putting it in China. This actually could be another a complete another episode of your podcast. But in relation to what Andy raised, uh, I'm just going to follow on Akhil's point. You can think of governments as not only rulers, but also information systems. Yes. And democratic information systems have proven themselves over and over again to be superior to autocratic information systems for the reasons Akhil mentions. Democratic information systems tend to be open to new information. And even though they can be unruly, lots of information can actually get in. And decision makers know what's going on, and there's a lot of back and forth, which leads in the long run to better decision making, especially in the, and I think especially in the case of markets. That's why these things tend to be connected to each other. Autocratic ones will shut out information they don't want to receive, and so they'll they'll make lots of errors, uh, unnecessary errors, unforced errors, and we can see that in the history of autocratic regimes. So I would rather have the reserve currency. And the the uh, the dom- basic denominated bond, right? Savings bond be a democracy. It doesn't have to be the United States, but I much prefer it to be a democracy and a market democracy. But anyway, let me get back to the uh, before we get to Fourteenth Amendment. Let me just talk a little bit about currency because everybody wants to know about trillion dollar coins. And whose picture is going to be on them? I'm not going to talk about that. That's <laughs> up to you. That's really up to you. The United States can raise money a lot of different ways. Uh, bonds are one way. You can just float bonds. You sell bonds. but that And that's governed by statute. If you got rid of the debt ceiling, the Treasury could just float as many bonds as it wanted. But suppose you tell the Treasury, no, no more than this amount. There are a lot of things you can do. The United States is not on the gold standard, right? It controls its own money supply. And so it can basically change the amount of money in the economy through all sorts of methods. One is by printing more money. There's actually a limit on bills that you can uh, print, but there, there is a, a statute that allows coinage of platinum coins at any denomination. So, uh, you know, this, this was floating around for years before I read about it. 
in 2011, you could just make a platinum coin of any denomination you want. And now it's money. It's legal tender. You take it over the Federal Reserve and you put it in the government's account and then you write checks on it. It's it's basically <laughs> the same as the as the Federal Reserve giving the government a loan, because that's what happens when a bank gives you a loan. It's it basically adds some money to your checking account. So once you realize that the government is not tied to the government has its own currency and it can print it, there are infinite number of ways of increasing the money supply. So what is the platinum coin, which everybody finds amusing because it's a coin and it's like the size of a quarter and you could lose it in the couch, in the couch cushions or something. (laughs) (laughs) But there's so much. Let me give you another example. And And these are the mind boggles the way you can do it. So here's one. You the, put the it in the vending machine, Vanitha? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the federal government has, uh, a, uh, I think it has, um, the debt now is somewhere, what is it? Do you know what it is? Is it, It's more than $15 trillion, isn't it? It's, yes, I believe it is more than $15 trillion. Yeah, but let's just postulate it's around $15 trillion or so. Okay, fine. So there's a non-zero chance that the debt won't be paid. So there is a thing called, you know, a credit debt swap. So what you could do is you could just buy insurance on whether or not the debt will be paid. This is what happened in the 2008 fiscal crisis. And so you AIG, buy, credit de-swaps. Yeah, yeah. it tried to default swap. So what you do is you just, you know, the Treasury says, hey, would you like to buy, would you like to buy an insurance premium on whether or not the debt will be paid? And the Federal Reserve says, sure. How much would the premium be? And uh, the Treasury says $2, billion, $2 trillion. Okay, we'll pay. So then they take the money and they put it in the account and then that's it. And then it expires. The insurance premium expires after 90 days or after a year. And then you do it all over again. Here's another way you can do it. Okay. The, 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 uh, the federal government goes to the Red Federal Reserve and says, would you, like to, would you like to buy the Statue of Liberty? And the Federal Reserve says, sure, sure, we'd love to buy it. Well, it says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you an option to buy it for one year. Well, how much does the option cost? Oh, two trillion dollars. Okay, fine. Uh, fine, we'll buy the option. Oh, fine. We'll put a credit to our account. And so two trillion dollars of uh, of money goes in the government's account, and you write checks off that. So you understand that the trillion dollar coin is just a gimmick. But the basic idea, which is that the United States can increase or decrease its money supply, this is a basic feature of modern economies, of, of, right? And so there's so many many different ways to do it. The, the reason why people have fixated on the trillion dollar coin is because it's a gimmick. I mean, it's it's kind of silly, and people find it amusing, but. There's no reason in theory why the government can't take any of these different steps. And I just mentioned three. There are others it could do. But there are good reasons as a matter of monetary policy not to do it. So in other words, when you see Yellen objecting to the trillion dollar coin and all the other stuff, she's basically saying, look, this is a problem of fiscal policy. This is a problem of, you know, paying your debts and uh, deciding, you know, to pay what you're owed. Don't make us monkey with monetary policy uh, in a crazy way that might have all sorts of bad effects in the long run. And I should just say that even though you could do the trillion dollar coin or the debt, debt swap or the, 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 uh, the option on buying the Statue of Liberty or 5,000 other crazy ideas, if you keep doing that or if you even do it once, you're telling everyone around the world that the people in the United States are not serious. Uh, they're not to be trusted. And that they're in danger of basically causing their economy to melt down and then the world economy to melt down. And you need to uh, you need people to believe uh, that the United States is a reliable actor economically. So, Jack, since you mentioned the Statue of Liberty, I want to throw one more thing. Um, And we hadn't talked about this, um, you know, in in the prep. So I I hope I'm not just throwing you for a loop. But 
the United States, it has a massive debt. Um, okay. 31 uh, trillion, by the way. 31 trillion. Yeah, I thought it was over 30. You know, when I, when I first started doing this in 2010, it was closer to A trillion here, a trillion there, yeah, pretty soon you're talking about real money. money. Okay. That, yeah. That's a lot, and you compare it to our GDP. But here's the, the truth. The United States has vast assets, the, the land of the United States. The United States government owns a ton. Now, when it's selling stuff to itself, you know, the U.S. government to the to the Federal Reserve, the, the Statue of Liberty, this reminds me of Enron stuff. OK, so this is like not proper accounting practices for for my left hand to sell something to my right hand. But I promise you at arm's length, fair market prices, if the United States actually sold a lot of its assets on just, you know, to, to private persons, not to itself, that would be trillions and trillions of dollars. And now the, po- the folks who would be outraged by this are fellow environmentalists like myself. Um, it has complicated political dynamics because the fact that the federal government owns so much of the Western states, a huge percentage of California land, Nevada land is actually owned by the federal government. And, and this has generated a lot of friction between the federal government uh, and the states. But Jack, I don't know if you've actually thought about the genuine asset sales. There might be independent reasons not to sell. Oh, of course. Assets. They're, you know, right. You know, they're, they're precious, you know, resources, but I don't know if you've actually investigated th- that part of the, well, of, yeah, the equation. of course the government could sell its property as a way of raising money. So I was just using examples where you're just increasing the money supply. But sure, you can also just you can also sell the government's property. You can sell options on the government's property. Well, that was my Statue of Liberty example. Right. But but that was, I thought, a little bit, you know, sketchy, dodgy, because you're selling it in effect to another kind of quasi uh, governmental institution. But I'm imagining just selling it to you or, or me or Andy. You know, we'll we'll buy stuff at a at a fair market price and the government will, you know, have our get our money. Well, a couple of points on that. First of all, I actually think that that's a far inferior solution because it uh, you talk about signals that it sends to the world. What did you think when Brandeis University started, de- you know, selling off the art from its museums, you know, things like that? You thought this is a, an institution in decline that that uh, is, you know, is doing things that such an institution should never do. It's irresponsible um, caretaking of its precious resources. That's one thing. The other thing is. You, know, you say, well, you know, you sell it to yourself. This is bogus. But you're, you're using the standards that people use when they say, well, you know, if I borrow money, I have to pay it back. I have a balanced budget in my house, you know, things like that. The government is not a family. It doesn't run by the same, you know, economic rules as individuals. And when we start thinking of it that way, we really get in trouble. Well, here's what I actually am saying. You say, what kind of government would we be if we actually sold off our assets? Well, you need to ask our friend Abe Lincoln that because we sold a ton of land to be privatized it to get the railroads actually to connect the east to the west and what i'm telling you because i'm a westerner okay that folks in the west understand there's all this federal land that's not always you know properly managed now again the environmentalists are going to scream bloody murder but i promise you going forward into the next century i'm i'm predicting there will be more discussion about privatizing some of uh, america's um, uh, public assets and not in this sketchy way of maybe it's not like a household but it shouldn't be like enron either when you're just selling stuff to yourself and it's just all a house of cards okay but no all right so two things here first of all unlike akil i am disclaiming any skills as a macroeconomist i know just enough to get in trouble and just enough to make you know plausible claims but please don't take my economic 
advice on anything. Please don't hire me to do any economic analysis. But listen to him on Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, because he demands. Uh, the second thing I, I, I want to say, this point about Lincoln and uh, Western lands and the railroads is going to take us into where I really want to go now, which is talking about the constitutional question. Good. Um, so uh, Section 4 uh, says that – and so, in fact, what we ought to do is we ought to get the text here so we can yes. – Yeah, it says the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the first point. So you can't question the public debt of the United States. The second sentence says, neither shall the United States or any state assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States. So the second sentence says you can't pay Confederate debt, right, or any debt that was incurred in the aid of, of a, a rebellion or, insurrect, or insurrection or rebellion. The third sentence, which is actually the, the second clause of the second sentence, says you can't Neither the United States or any state shall assume any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. So you have three sentences. One is about the federal debt, right, can't be questioned. Two, you may not assume or pay uh, Confederate debt, rebel, rebel debt. And three, all claims for emancipations of slaves are void. You, you may not pay them. Mm-hmm. These are three different parts, and they're all connected in a way in thinking about the political economy of the United States following the Civil War. Here's the big, here's the story I'll tell you. So the United States is fighting the Confederacy. The Confederacy needs to raise money for its troops. And so it does what the United States itself did when it was fighting Britain. It goes to financiers around the world and says, guys, we're going to win this war. So please uh, loan us money. They say, well, you might win the war. You might not win the war. If you don't win the war, then you're, you know, these bonds are worthless. Oh, no, said the Confederates. Absolutely not. Because after the war is over, even if we lose, we're going to come back into Congress. And once we're in Congress, we're going to raise bloody hell until they pay off the, the debt, not only for the Union debt, but for our debt. So don't worry about that. You can buy our bonds safely because you know that we're going we're to come back in Congress and we're going to basically cause problems unless you pay the debt. So the, the, the Republicans understood exactly what was going to happen. And they said, we can't do that because as soon as we let these uh, re- former rebels back into the Congress, they're not going to care about anything other than getting the debts paid, Confederate debt paid. And so they're going to hamstring the government. They're going to shut it down. They're going to demand that uh, they're going to say as a price of passing any legislation, you have to pay the Confederate debt and blah, 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 blah. Right. You see what I mean? So yes. they said, we're going to put in the Constitution that our hands are tied. We can't pay the debt. Constitution prohibits it. Then the next move. We pay the Confederate debt. Confederate debt. But then, the, then somebody pointed out, yeah, but you know what they're going to do next? They're going to refuse to pay the Union debt. They're going to hold the Union debt hostage unless you pay the Confederate debt. And so they said, all right, we'll put that in the Constitution, too. You can't question the, the, you can't question the Union debt, or, and you can't pay the Confederate debt. And then the third issue was, the first thing they're going to do when they come back in Congress is, they're going to demand that they, we reimburse them for the, the lost property of the, all the slaves. And the Republicans said, we can't do that. We would be, and here I'm going to hand it over to Akil in a second, we would basically be bankrupting ourselves into the future. We'd be putting an enormous financial burden on ourselves if we had to pay the costs of all the slaves. There had been, in fact, um, proposals for emancipation 
uh, and, and colonization uh, before the Civil War, but most of them were compensated. That is to say, there was compensation to the owners. But now something was being done on a scale so massive that it would be impossible to imagine uh, uh, hamstringing the American economy for years and years and years into the future. So they said, no, 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 we are not paying for the, uh, the, uh, uh, for the cost of any slaves. That goes also in. So these are three big ideas that are placed in Section 4 in order to prevent what was seen as the obvious play by congressional Democrats returning to Congress. Akhil, you and I have talked about this. For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for a continuing legal education. Directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere, by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is FRAGMENT. That's F-R-A-G-M-E-N-T, FRAGMENT. It's not case sensitive. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. So I love what Jack just did. It's spectacular. Um, and I want to say two or three things about it. First, what Jack just did, friends, is originalism and very well done. And I don't know this stuff, and he does, on Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. He, we read the text. That's where we started. And then he told us the context. What's behind it? What are the big ideas? You know, and then he also earlier had said they're going to always be close questions. You know, what's debt versus an obligation and how to think about, you know, pension, war pensions are clearly in, you know, entitlement programs. Hmm, I'm not so sure, you know, sure. They weren't quite thinking about that. Friends, that's originalism. Looking at the text, understanding the historical context and the big ideas and what was going on. And then recognizing that that won't answer necessarily all the questions that we have today because the world has changed. And sometimes the questions that we're seeking to answer aren't the ones that they were focused on. Okay. But that's originalism and it was beautifully done. Second thing, and, and Jack is an originalist and we, you know, I'm, I'm very glad to have him, uh, you know, on, you know, on my team or, you know, he might say, you know, that I'm on his team, but either way, we're on the same team, the originalist team. And I would say that we both self-identify as left of center. So liberal originalism, if you will. And Andy doesn't like that as a category, but fine. We're originalists who also happen to be liberal. Okay, but but we are originalists and you just saw what originalism is. Second and related. What Jack just told you, and and he can correct me if I'm wrong, does not appear in U.S. reports. Most people who do constitutional law focus on Supreme Court cases and the Supreme Court cases. Oh, half of them, uh, the constitutional cases are about the 14th Amendment, but they're not about 14th Amendment Section 4. They're about words like due process and equal protection and maybe just a little bit of conversation about privileges or immunities. Or maybe now we're moving toward a conversation about the citizenship clause or something. But unless Jack corrects me, and he and I have a casebook together. He's the lead editor of the casebook, along with our dear friend Sandy Levinson. It's the Levinson, Balkan, Amar Siegel, Rodriguez casebook, uh, now in its eighth edition. But unless he corrects me, I really don't know of any important Supreme Court cases talking about the three aspects of Section 4 
of the 14th Amendment. So originalism um, is uh, essential in part because not all important constitutional questions actually get to court and generate a lot of case law. And you need to be able to answer constitutional questions without the benefit of cases if you're Joe Biden, if you're the Office of Legal Counsel, if you're Janet Yellen, if you're in Congress. You know, um, you need to know what the basic ground rules of engagement are, and there may not be a case. And that's why you need to be able to do text, structure, um, and, and history, in a word, originalism. Now, the third and final thing I want to say, Andy, here we come back to Lincoln and to the railroads. You see, Jack is right there. Um, Lincoln originally, as a young anti-slavery lawyer, is imagining compensated emancipation because that's going to make it easier to do if you provide at least some partial compensation for the, the slaveholders who are losing various forms of property. Just as a matter of politics, um, they're not going to scream uh, and screech quite so much if there's compensation. Now, Lincoln, as late as uh, December 1863, um, after he's issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Um, well, that's 1862 and the, this, um, yeah, uh, right. uh, so September 1862. And then the, the permanent one is 1863. Mm-hmm. So it might actually be December 1862. I'd have to double check, but, but even after he's issued the preliminary, yeah, I think it may be December 1862. I correct myself. Um, he proposes a scheme of compensated emancipation and he's going to compensate, you know, slaveholders and also put in a pot of money to finance voluntary colonization. The newly freed black men, women and children are going to be given tickets to go to South America or Africa or some other place. And who's going to pay for those tickets? The federal government in Lincoln's plan. Yes, I think it's December 1862. My apology is going to pay for all that. And where is the federal government going to get the money? You know, and Jack is skeptical of this, but but Lincoln says, I'm going to get the money by selling Western land. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get money from the same pot that we, in effect, used to build the railroad in this privatized way. We gave a well, lot of land. Well, I'm skeptical of that, but it, it goes to my third point, which is the money that would go for compensating the slaves, for compensating slave owners, would completely wreck all of Lincoln's plans in the Morrill Act, the development of land-grant colleges, the building of the railroads, all the things that were done with the money from the sale of Western lands. So I'm not disputing that Western lands could be sold. It's just that when you do that, when you basically compensate the slaveholders, you you tie up enormous amounts. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to compensate the slaveholders. What I'm saying is, and I'm so glad you brought in the, the Moral Land Grant um, yeah. Act, my brother, Vic, who's been on this podcast on multiple occasions, is the dean of the University of Illinois College of Law, and, and that's basically a, a Lincoln legacy. What I want to, you know, just our audience to understand is there was a time in American history. This is the reason I say this, Andy. It's not just that I'm an economist of a certain sort. I'm an historian. And I know that in the 1850s and 1860s, there was a lot of conversation about using federal lands, selling them in certain ways for certain projects. Here's the thing. You can't do it twice. You know, you can sell it and give it to the railroad. So they'll build this railroad, giving them a lot of land along the railroad line. You can give it to great universities that to create great public um, universities like the University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, and, and so on. Uh, Cornell actually gets some of this money as well. The Moral Land Grant Act. You could give it to, to pay slaveholders, which I think would be the, the, the most horrible 
uh, of all, um, and that's what the 14th Amendment Section 4 says, we won't do that. We're going to tie our hands saying we're not going to do that. Although Lincoln had floated the idea in 1860 and December 1862. Another thing that you could do, I'm saying today, is you could use it to, to, um, to pay down the national debt. And we're going to have a conversation about this in the next century, I believe, about these federal assets. And again, the environmentalists, you see, you're talking about the right wing folks on one side, and they want to pay things down by, you know, cutting spending and cutting taxes. And the Democrats, you know, want to manage things by raising taxes on people who can pay. And, and, and that's will bring in more money into the coffers. I'm bringing a third thing in the equation, which is my party, my base, the environmentalists are going to scream bloody murder if we start talking about um, selling federal, the federal patrimony. And we can only do it once. You know, and what are we going to do it for? Well, no, here's the final thing, and, and people disagree about this, and Paul Krugman has written several um, essays on it. Is our total debt-to-GDP ratio getting worrisome? Um, and it, if we were Greece or Portugal or Italy or Spain, yes, actually, we would be at a worrisome level of total debt you know, which is not 15 trillion, but 31 trillion to GDP. Um, but the reason Paul Krugman isn't um, shitting bricks right now is he says, because we're the world um, reserve currency and all the rest, we can get away with stuff that other nations couldn't. And I'm saying, okay, but there, there are two different issues that I actually want to identify. The immediate debt crisis debate um, but the longer, que- the, but the bigger question is, is our debt beginning to get to worrisome levels, um, like World War II-ish levels? And, and I don't have a strong position on that. Um, but I wanted to put that into the equation because I wanted to say the solution to some of these things, I have a twofold solution. Okay. It's, um, one is we're going to have to talk about selling land. The other thing is we're going to have to talk about letting a lot more of my cousins into the United States, people from around the world who are going to be younger and pay for my Medicare and Social Security. Um, and, um, and that's a, and China has a huge problem because its population just plateaued. It's going to go down. They're going to become old before they become rich. Um, there are going to be a lot of people, old people that are going to need to be subsidized, uh, funded by, um, um, uh, younger generations. Social security isn't a pay as you, I mean, isn't kind of you pay in and then you, you get your individual um, um, uh, uh, um, money back with interest is each generation actually paying for the generation before, which is easier when you're growing harder, you know, when, when you're not demographically increasing and the solution to this and the Republicans aren't going to want it, but it, going forward, yes, we're going to have to have more people come to that and they will want to, if we don't screw up our system. Yeah. I know it's very provocative just from a global and historical perspective. Here are just a couple of points that I, that I want to make uh, uh, America is actually very thinly populated um, compared to our um, our counterpart nations in the world. Our population density is quite low, and we have um, a much larger proportion of public land, public domain, especially federal land, um, national land, than many of our counterpart nations. Um, so, so those are resources that are available to us, uh, possible immigration, because um, a lot of people around the world would be willing to come to the United States and, and, and pay for that privilege and pay, pay into our systems. Um, and um, we've got the land to accommodate them. Yeah, I mean, I think these are reasonable points and, and good points, really. But um, what I think is that, you know, this is a resource that you only get to use once um, in total. I mean, we're not mm-hmm. going to use part of it at a time, but mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a 
a spectacular resource that the United States possesses. And I think it needs to be looked at in the, <laughs> in one of my famous phrases, in the fullness of time. You know, and, and I think that we should perhaps utilize it, but we should only do so when we've convinced ourselves that this is the best use that we will ever have for it. Um, and to do it in the, you know, in the, in the moment of, a, of a, what is in effect a manufactured debt ceiling crisis, um, I think is probably not the way to accomplish that end. Um, so I would, I would have reservations from that point of view. Very good points. And we should come back um, to this. And, uh, uh, but just, um, and we may come back to this later in, in this episode, Andy, but uh, one very interesting thing is to think about how America has used its land um, uh, in the past mm-hmm. um, to solve um, various um, problems and address certain kind of unique um, historical opportunities and to think more generally about how America has uh, has used immigration policy to to, to strengthen our, um, our constitutional system. Agreed. So, Akil, you've you've talked about a lot of things here: the, uh, the the big debt, immigration, selling land. All these things are are provocative and and interesting and kind of huge cans of worms. Yes. I think that they probably deserve more elaboration um, in their you know in their own right at some point. You're absolutely right, Andy. Um, uh, and this podcast is is not afraid to kind of go big um, rather than going home um, on immigration in particular. Um, I think maybe we should have a future episode bringing um, my colleague Christina Rodriguez on. She actually is on uh, the casebook with uh, Jack and me. Uh, Jack and I have a casebook together, and Christina just joined the casebook, and she's the world's expert on um, immigration, and and we should get her on the podcast at, a certain, at some point. Right. So I think that uh, yeah, we'll have to give the, these things the America's Constitution treatment rather than just throwing them out here. So, um, yes. So there you OK, go. so, yeah, I, I confess I, I threw a lot out there, you know, pretty quickly and, and, and they, they deserve much more attention. You're okay. right, Andy. OK. I wanted, however, to return to the emancipation uh, part of, of uh, Section 4. Mm-hmm. And here's what I want to introduce. It's something Akil and I have talked about, and I, I, I very much like him to weigh in on this. So one way of understanding what Section 4 does is it works an enormous redistribution of income, or actually the redistribution occurs with the 13th Amendment when you end slavery. But what it does is says that, that, that it's really a redistribution of income uh, and wealth. We are not going to compensate. Massive. Uh, Russian massive. Revolution style, taking all the assets that used to be the human assets, the chattel that used to be owned by slaveholders, giving them to the slaves themselves with not a penny of compensation. Wow, this is now, big. Now I want to tie this to the idea of a successful democratic republic. And the idea I want to suggest is that this problem, the problem of you have an unjust regime where wealth has been concentrated in the hands of a relatively small number of people. That's the slave power, right? The owners of the plantations and the massive uh, plantations with all the slaves on them, huge concentrations of wealth, um, right? These guys are the 1% of the 1% of their day. And what you do is you have this cataclysmic civil war, and in the aftermath, how are you going to restore, reconstruct democracy? The decision that's been made in Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, and I think it's underappreciated, is a massive redistribution of wealth necessary to have a new birth of freedom. Compare two examples. 
Very One, good. I'm going to have you talk about Haiti in a second, Akil, but I'm going to talk about South America. In South America, one of the things that undermined the growth of democracy in South America was the fact that it was very difficult to get land reform done. You had concentrations of wealth in large landed estates. And unless you could break up those landed estates and distribute them among the populace, you were going to have real trouble having democracy work over the long run. Uh, and this is not just true in South America. It's in true other places. So uh, the, the United States was different in this sense. Um, not completely different, but the, the slaves were freed and they weren't compensated. Instead of breaking up all the landed estates in the South, however, they sold federal land. This is the relationship to the Western lands. And so instead of basically taking that property away and breaking it up, what happened was that they just sold property they had. But the important thing to understand is you can't really have a new birth of freedom in the United States unless you deal with the incredible concentration of wealth that was called the slave power. And this, a similar problem, or not identical, but a, an analogous problem occurred in Haiti, which is what we were talking about the other day, Akil. Yes, and I was at an event earlier this week at the New York Historical Society. Andy was there in the front row with Annette Gordon-Reed and David Blight, and we talked about Thomas Jefferson and Frederick Douglass, and we talked about Haiti, because Annette Gordon-Reed had written a piece about what we Americans, the moral debt, at least, that she believes we owe to the people of Haiti. And here's what she said. The Haitian Revolution it was a slave-led revolution by Toussaint Louverture in the 1790s and early 1800s, eventually succeeded. And Napoleon gave up and uh, because he was whooped by Toussaint Louverture and um, by natural forces, epidemic and the like. And so he gives up on his efforts to hold Haiti. And in the end, if he's not going to hold Haiti, is generates fabulous wealth at a certain point because it produces sugar, which is a very, very valuable commodity in the world. And it's so valuable to produce sugar that the, the overlords of Haiti don't want anyone using any square inch of land to produce anything else, foodstuffs, you know, corn or wheat or barley to eat. So every inch of land in Haiti is going to be used to produce sugar. And so you're going to need to feed the slaves and, and, and the other laborers. Napoleon says, ah, well, that's what New Orleans is for. New Orleans, which is in French hands, is going to be our main supply depot for Haiti and, and Americans and others are going to generate a lot of food in, in their heartland and we'll funnel it through New Orleans and that's how we'll feed Haiti. Now, once he's giving up on Haiti because Toussaint Louverture has, has um, bested him, he doesn't need New Orleans anymore. And he's got a war that he's fighting in Europe. So he agrees to sell not just New Orleans, but all of Louisiana, which is not the current state of Louisiana. That's one tiny part. It's everything um, basically from the mouth of the Mississippi all the way through all the, 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 the headwaters to the Rockies, through the Missouri, you know, all the way up to Minnesota. This is a, it's a doubling of, and we call that the Louisiana purchase. And if you get it at a bargain basement price, I think it was $15 million. Or something. It doubles the size of America and it's Thomas Jefferson's biggest triumph. So this was a, a conversation, Jack, earlier this week about Thomas Jefferson and Frederick Douglass. So here's what Annette Gordon-Reed says. She says, because of Haiti, the U.S. benefits hugely from Napoleon's plans. We, we double our landmass. We, we benefit from this slave 
revolt. And Frederick Douglass comes in the picture because 75 years later, 80 years later, he's going to be U.S. ambassador to Haiti, you know, a black ambassador to a black republic. Okay. Now, how does all this connect to what we've been talking about? Here's how. Because Haiti, in the end, the United States benefits from this warfare between Napoleon and and, and the slaves in, in Haiti. Eventually, Napoleon leaves, but he leaves only by extorting the Haitians. He says, we will leave. We will recognize the Haitian Republic as independent. We'll stop waging war on you. But you have to compensate us for all the slave labor that you've now appropriated, taken from us and, and given to yourselves, the slaves. And Haiti actually makes a bat, you know, a deal, um, in extremists and says, fine, we'll pay you back. We can't pay you immediately, but we'll, uh, we'll have massive debt and we promise to pay you the French for our own freedom. And I'm not an expert on the, the uh, economy of Haiti, but Annette Gordon Reed had written a piece in the New York Times saying, Ever since, Haiti has basically been an economic basket case of a certain sort because the debt that they incurred to, just to, for their own freedom was so massive, so crippling that, you know, 200 years later, we're still seeing the ripple effects. And I think if all that's true, oh, the French owe, you know, a, a debt to the Haitians and should forgive this. I'm not sure about the Americans. It's a little complicated, but Haiti is just the story, Jack, that you're talking about, about if you actually have to compensate the the old regime and the evildoers for this massive appropriation. Oh, my gosh, that's a that's a huge burden that you're taking on. Yeah, I suggest again, I haven't done the studies on it. I would suggest that if the United States had compensated the slaves. Uh, the slaveholders after uh, during Reconstruction, um, it would have greatly crippled American growth, economic growth, and we would be a much less powerful country today, much less free country today, and I suspect also a much less democratic country today. But Lincoln was willing, at least, to float the idea of selling a lot of Western land in order to 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 buy the slave power off. In the end, we didn't do that at all. But but the point. You know, that is true is you can sell it once, you know, at a fair price, you know, to someone and then you've given up and you can sell it for, you know, to get a railroad, which is really important that you don't that you're not paying for, uh, you know, out of your own pocket and you're not building. You're giving the land to the railroads and in exchange for the land along the, the railroad line, they're going to build the railroad for you for free. Um, you can give it for railroads. You can give it for public education, the Moral Land Grant Act. You could give it, um, Lincoln is even imagining, to uh, pay off the slave power. I just want to say, I hear I'll coin a phrase. You know, the Fifth Amendment has a just compensation clause. I think this third sentence in the Section 4 of the 14th Amendment should be called the just non-compensation clause. Love it. As a matter as a matter of justice, it was important not to compensate the slaveholders. Absolutely. Totally agreed. So, I mean, you could argue that that uh, this kind of redistribution of wealth, you know, is, of course, we see the ultimate instability in terms of the war. Um, but then even afterwards, you know, we have redemption and, you know, some level of subjugation of the African-American population and that that's economically exploited by the planter class Um and so that they actually did get some compensation through, you know, manipulation of the system later. I mean, maybe not compensation. I, I just but. thank you for saying that, Andy, because this has to do with the question of land reform. So you had non-compensation, but you didn't have systematic land reform in the South. 
And that's what leads to the sharecropper system that you're describing right mm -hmm. now. You had to break up that you also had to break up the large estates, uh, which they did not do. And you had to you had to reorganize the economy of the South. It was partially done. It was not done completely. But of course, as we all know, Reconstruction was an incompleted project. So two thing, two or three things on that. One on the minimal vision that, that did get implemented in at least some places and the sea islands and elsewhere. It's not just breaking up the uh, big plantations, but giving wherewithal to slaves, not, yes, giving them yes. not just their, 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 yes. their own selves, um, and maybe the clothes on their back and a, a hoe or a shovel or two or something, but 40 acres and a mule was a vision. Yes. And, and that's again what you can use the land for the moral act or 40 acres and a mule, the homestead act in the West, which is 160 acres, which is privatizing the West, you see, Andy, or for the railroads. Lincoln is thinking about creative uses of land. So I actually, I should have mentioned the homesteading act. Act, along with the Moral Land Grant Act and the railroad stuff. And it's all about using the land. Lincoln thinks a lot about the land. So that's that's one thing. Breaking up the big land monopoly, but also giving a, a Southern former Southern slaves the freedmen land, which we didn't do very much of. A little right. bit and, and, and not very much. Second thing, Andy, you used an important word, and I want to highlight it for our audience. You used a word, because you know a lot about history, redemption. Now, redemption by, used by historians is generally referred to as a period. It, it's the, how Southern whites think about it. They, uh, it's about the end of Reconstruction and they're returning to as best they can to the good old days, their old way of life. So we're not talking the, with redemption about redeeming the debt, which is mm -hmm. a different kind of redemption, nor are we talking about redemption in Jack Balkan's sense. Jack Balkan has actually written several books. One is called Living Originalism, and you've heard a lot about that today. Um, but he's also written about constitutional redemption, constitutional redemption. So, Jack, maybe you could tell them a little bit about what redemption means to you in your constitutional vision. The best way of thinking about what redemption is, is by reference to the um, Old Testament. Um, so, the Old Testament has a redemption story. The redemption story is God makes a promise uh, to Abraham uh, and the patriarchs. He says, I will fulfill it someday. And then God also redeems the Israelites from slavery. So he takes them out of the, uh, the house of bondage and brings them to the promised land. That's a redemption. And I've been to Seder at your house where we tell that story. So um, redemption is the, is the fulfillment of a promise made in the past. Uh, that's the first idea about what redemption is. So promise is made and the promise is then redeemed, right? But the second idea is that redemption is also, the second idea of redemption is tied to the idea of being lifted out of slavery, which is that you're in a condition, you're in a bad condition, and then the, po the possibility of redemption is offered to you. So that's the second idea, the idea of being lifted out of a, con of a, a worse condition. The third idea actually is the inverse which is the idea that the condition in which you are in is somehow really bad and fallen and it's affecting you, right? That is, you're in a fallen condition and that what's necessary for you is to improve yourself and to be, to, so in order for you to be redeemed, you have to improve yourself so that you can be redeemed. This is actually also a biblical story. It's interesting because the, after the, uh, the children of Israel leave uh, slavery, they, they go across the Red Sea and then they, proceed to forget everything that was done for them. They misbehave, they worship the golden calf, they do all the sorts of things. And each time uh, they're showing that they're still living in uh, slavery. 
they still have inside them, right, a world where they've been beaten down and they're still acting like slaves. And eventually what God says is that you're not going to make it, you guys won't make it to the promised land because you still have slavery in your heart. You're still slaves, but your children will. So you won't make it, but you know, the next generation will. And that's a story about redemption as a constant, continual process of freeing yourself from previous forms of servitude and becoming something better than you once were before. That's another idea of redemption. So redemption is an idea with many, many different, different connotations to it. When we talk about constitutional redemption, we're talking about all three of these. One is the ref, uh, fulfillment of promises made in the Constitution in the past which can only be redeemed in the present. The second is freeing ourselves from an older, more unjust world and becoming a better world, but also freeing ourselves from our own flaws and imperfections and our own limitations, which were created in part by the unjust conditions in which we live and making ourselves into a better republic. So that's the idea of constitutional redemption is, is perfecting the American republic. And MLK has all three of those in what we call the I Have a Dream speech, which actually for most of his time on stage, he actually doesn't get to the I Have a Dream. That's at the very end. It's actually all about the insufficient funds speech, is it, is it like they, <laughs> which is connected to like reneging on the debt. They've, you know, given this, us this check, you know, but when we show up to, you know, to cash the check, they say, oh, insufficient fund. We're not good for, for the check. That speech is, you know, it's so interesting how it connects, Jack, your, your big themes about um, redemption with the, the narrow issue about reneging on the debt. Well, you might say that you shall not question uh, uh, the promises made in the Constitution. Uh, that's another way of asking, saying what Martin Luther King is saying. He says the Constitution promises liberty and equality, and you will not be allowed to question that. Um, and he, of course, very famously is seen as, since you're mentioning all this Old Testament stuff um, and, and Passover stuff, he's seen as the Moses of his people. See, there are two different biblical narratives in America. The white narrative tends to see America as Israel, the land of, of milk and honey, the promised land, and we're going to build a city on a hill or something. The black narrative sees America, at least for much of its history, as Egypt, a land of bondage from which we seek deliverance. And you see Moses is the, uh, I mean, I see MLK is the Moses of his people, which is why Taylor Branch's three-volume uh, history of the life and times of Martin Luther King is part of the waters, pillar of fire at Canaan's edge. These are mosaic references. And very famously, in the last speech that King gives, you know, only hours really before his death, and which you can all see on YouTube, and Andy, we should put up a clip, you know, King very famously says, I may not get there with you, you know, but I've seen the promised land. Um, you know, a reference to Moses being allowed by God to ascend the mountaintop and see the promised land, even though God says you're not going to be allowed to to enter it. Um, and and it's very prophetic when King says that because within hours, really, um, a, a day or two, he's dead. You know, there's some... I mean, I've heard this analogy many times, but there's, or this metaphor, but there's, there's a certain distasteful aspect to it also because um, the, uh, you know, the Israelites are leaving Egypt and going to their own uh, country. So that smacks of colonization, um, you know, uh, having the, you know, the, the blacks leave 
United States and go to you know Liberia or Haiti or something like that. Um, you know, so that's that isn't a very that isn't a, a pleasant way to think about it. I think. And and Lincoln's early vision until the very end is one of colonization. He he really doesn't shift to a, a thought that freed blacks are going to be able to just be part of American society as as full citizens and eventually as as equal voters. That's something that Lincoln doesn't come, a vision that does not come to until the very end, at least publicly. Now, maybe in his heart, he was always there, but politically, you know, um, he had to kind of wait for his countrymen to, to begin to, to come around. But important, Andy, not to take the story too literally. So the term for Egypt, Mithraim, Mithraim in Hebrew, sometimes referred to any kind of bondage. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a particular land and you, and you're freeing yourself from it. So there's a sense in which the story of African-Americans in the United States could be a story in which they leave Egypt, which is the United States, and they eventually come to the promised land, which is the United States. That is, to turn the United States from being the land of bondage to the promised land, and they never leave, mm-hmm. but they change the country around them. Yeah, that's a, that's a far more uplifting uh, approach. Okay, so before we, we wrap this up, I want to just get... Um, Professor Balkan's opinion on a, a couple of questions that come up uh, in the public press when people discuss uh, the issues surrounding the, the debt ceiling. Um, I've seen reference to the notion that the president has an affirmative constitutional obligation to spend monies that are appropriated by Congress. Is that true? Well, as uh, uh, by statute, because there's a thing called the Impoundment Act, which arose during a series of, of struggles over the budget with Richard Nixon. So um, what the Constitution requires is much more iffy, but certainly there's a framework statute in place that has uh, that ha- has say over this matter. Akil, you've, you've talked about Yeah, that. another way of putting Jack's point is, if the statute really clearly says you must spend X, well, presumably you must spend X. If the statute says you may, you may spend, you know, up to X, well, that's a different kind of statute. Now, sometimes the statute isn't so clear. It just says X and it might not be clear whether it's you must spend X or you may spend up to X. Suppose, for example, it was about buying stationary supplies and staples a sale on paper or on paper clips or uh, on post-its or whatever. And you say, hey, I was able to get all that I needed at a lower price. So why should I spend the, the remainder? And Nixon took the position, President Nixon, that some of these statutes, in effect, were may spend up to X and not must spend X. Now, if the statute very clearly says you must spend X, and why would a statute say that if if you can get it for less? Oh, because Congress people want money spent in their districts for a a fort or a dam or a road or a park um, or whatever, some bridge to nowhere, some useless um, warship or something, but it's, it's being built in their district. So, I think I agree totally with Jack that a lot of these seemingly constitutional questions kind of, in effect, um, reduce to statutory questions. What does the statute mean? And even if it says must, is there ever an unforeseen situation in which the must doesn't even mean must, um, the so-called rule of absurdity? The rule of absurdity, for example, is the statute says anyone who spills blood on the streets of Bologna sheds blood shall suffer death. Well, 
no, that wouldn't be very sensible if a surgeon performs an emergency tracheotomy to, to save the life of a stricken pedestrian or something. But I'm with Jack in thinking that the so-called impoundment controversy really in the end kind of boiled down to issues of statutory interpretation. You see where this would come up, though, in the context of the debt ceiling, that the you know we're talking about prioritizing paying the debt, but if there are other you know sums of money that must be spent for you know things that otherwise might yes. be included in a government shutdown, you know that he's going to have to you know spend that. So then that could get the president in a position where sooner than he might otherwise be, he's going to have to choose um, whether to spend money on uh, paying down debt or something else. And in other words, he's going to have to choose whether to default or whether to not spend money that he's obligated to spend. So those would both be, you know, so in that scenario, so that, so you've answered that question. I think the answer here is we don't know what the answer in, in that situation. Generally but, speaking, when the president is faced with a choice between two options, which are contrary to law, he has to choose the option, which is most consistent with the constitution at spirit. Um, and, no. and, and, and the, and the, I would say the thing that section four prioritizes above all else, the core, the key, you know, that if the absolute center of the bullseye is treasury bills, um, the, the, the audience, you know, I actually own treasury bills. Thank you. Thank you. The <laughs> last thing I'd say is that this is an artificial crisis. Mm-hmm. The United States should simply get rid of its debt ceiling. Yes. Or make it a percentage of its GDP. The reason uh, lots of other countries have uh, done very well uh, without a debt ceiling of the kind we have. Our debt ceiling was at the time a reform to make it easier for the Treasury to uh, borrow money. Uh, In in light of changed uh, circumstances, it's now a burden, but it's a burden we don't really need to have. We should just get rid of it. And of course, we're not we haven't gotten rid of it, not because people think that we still need it for the original purpose purposes, but rather because it's seen as a weapon by by one party and they don't want to give up, you know, the weapon. But of course, that's precisely what the 14th Amendment Section 4 was entitled to, was was intended to remove as a weapon. Now, let's say that... Um, Andy, just, Andy, just on that, yes. Just I want our audience to remember, that was what was brilliant about Jack's analysis, is he showed that in certain ways, <laughs> this is... Quite the, the current controversy is quite closely connected to political concerns that generated 14th Amendment Section 4. Yes, it was done by the Republican Party, the 14th Amendment Section 4, against you know possible Democratic, um, Southern Democratic extortionism. But now, actually, it's being used, um, the extortionists, you know, so to speak, are the Republicans, although they are a Southern party to a great extent, as were the Republicans back in the days of Newt Gingrich, you see. So he's actually showing you that the specific political concern that generated 14th Amendment Section 4 was kind of similar to um, uh, what we're seeing today, which only originalism can can help you see, because just the words, who knows what they were all about without some of the context. So you, I think it's a very persuasive argument. So now we're in a let's say we're in a situation where the president decides he's not going to issue the trillion dollar coin. You know, the, he's up against the debt ceiling. He he rec- he feels he has no choice but to borrow money anyway. Issue you know direct the treasury to, you know, print more bonds, issue more bonds, notwithstanding the fact that it's over the debt ceiling. Um, 
Would anyone have standing to sue him? What's Congress's remedy? Is it only impeachment? Or is, there, is does anyone have standing to try to say, no, you can't do that? Uh, well, uh, so first of all, I wish I, I, I am tempted to fight the hypothetical uh, since I don't think that, that issuing new debt, in fact, is the way you get out of it. But um, nevertheless, let's just stick with your hypothetical and say that suppose president does issue debt, new debt, instructs the treasury. Then the most likely person who would have standing would be a private party who claimed that the uh, security that was sold to them was not good. Mm -hmm. And so they would sue the government saying, you sold me a faulty security, something like that. So in other words, Congress, and in, uh, one house of Congress would probably not have standing. Uh, Akil's a federal courts expert, and I think he would probably agree with that, that one house of Congress by itself could not do it. Congress as a whole in representing its appropriations power uh, might have standing, but not just one single House of Congress. The most likely lawsuit would be brought by um, a, a, a it'd be a made-up case where one person buys a new bond, sells it to another, and the person who receives it then says, "Hey, this is not a good bond," and and that would be the basis of standing. I think this is I think this is really great, and I, I guarantee you that everyone that listens to this podcast will learn will have learned at least something that they didn't know before about. Fourteenth Amendment about the debt ceiling about all of this. I know I certainly <laughs> learned a lot. Um, all right, and, me uh, too. Really appreciate because we have it. because that's what we do on this podcast. We bring actually people who know what they're talking about, and on this stuff, Jack really knows what he's talking about. I learned stuff about Section Four that I didn't understand before. So um, perhaps, as you know, hopefully this will just fizzle out. But if it doesn't. Um, Perhaps we might uh, ask you to come back and and uh, opine on de later developments. All right, fine. Actually, I'd like to come back to talk about with with uh, uh, Akil about the constitutional features of infrastructure, transportation, and communications, which is the subject of his next book. Yes, let's do that, um, Jack. Guys, lovely to talk. To Thank you, you so much, Jack. Thank okay. you. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. And Andy, I think this was a great episode because our audience got not just some answers to a, a specific set of questions in the news, but we put it in the context of much broader issues of American constitutional law, both substantively what the Reconstruction was all about and methodologically, um, how do you think about originalism and what is originalism and why originalism? And, and we even put it in you know, a, a broader context, a, a worldwide context, thinking about China and Haiti and all sorts of other regimes. And that's what we try to do on this podcast, truthfully, that not all the other podcasts do. We, we've, we brought you, you know, the preeminent scholar of Section 4, the 14th Amendment and uh, the debt crisis issue. And, and I learned a ton on this episode. And, and I'm sure our audience, I hope our audience did as well. And, and we're going to get Jack back. So anyway, yeah, so that so really that was great. And uh, now I'm happy because Jack has agreed to come back. Um, yes. Necessary. Uh, I'm so, happy too. So thank you to, to him and thank you to Akil and thank you to our audience. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>